So first, loved ones, let us read responsively Lord's Day 18. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes to, and to judge the living and the dead. But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. And now our scripture reading from Acts 1, 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. It's the reading from Acts now from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Reading of God's word, loved ones, may he add his blessing to it. 
as we consider it. And I do ask that you return back to that passage in Acts as we'll be studying it quite intently here as we consider the ascension of Christ. Well, first we find that this book entitled Acts begins by saying, in my former book, Theophilus. So who wrote this book and to which former book is he referring? Well, naturally, we know that this author is Luke. Luke. Who was Luke? He was a Greek by birth, a physician, or a, yes, a physician, uh, a convert to Christianity, and also a faithful companion to the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys throughout uh, the Middle East back then. And so Paul refers to him in Colossians 4, actually, as Luke, the beloved physician. He was a dear companion and friend of his. What was the former book that Luke had written? Well, it was the gospel according to Luke, naturally. And for whom did he write this book? Who was his original and first audience? Well, he's addressing someone particularly, right? Who is it? Theophilus, Theophilus. His name, Theophilus, is a Greek compound of two words, theos and philo, uh, so God and love. One who loves God is what his name means. Now, Theophilus, why is he addressed personally? I suppose, uh, along with others, that it's probably because he was a generous patron of these two books. Luke needed the materials to write these books. He had to travel and investigate. He was basically a, a journalist uh, investigator, and so he had he needed to have a, some funds to provide uh, the necessary uh, money to make sure that he did a good job and did a, a, a an extensive account of both the gospel and as well Acts. So Theophilus probably financed Luke in the task of preparing what we can call Volume One and Volume Two. Luke being Luke's gospel being Volume One, and then here Acts being Volume Two. Now, what was that former book about? Well, Luke tells us in verses 1 to 2. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And so we find here that as it should be the case in all churches and in true Christianity, true Christianity is primarily about Jesus Christ, all that he has done, all that he has taught us, all that he is for us, right? What he has done in the past, but also what he is still doing today. Now, what does that verb began in verse one imply? It's interesting. He, didn't, he doesn't say, I told in my first book, I wrote about what Jesus did, but he said what he began to teach and do. It implies that this second book is continuing the account of the works and teachings of Jesus. Uh, if the first book was about what he began to do and teach until he was taken up into heaven, well, then this second book is about all that Jesus continues to do and teach now that he is in heaven. But if Jesus is ascended, as we're considering tonight, and seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, then how is he continuing to do his work and teach? Well, in his bodily absence, Christ continues to work primarily through the Holy Spirit, whom he sent to enable and equip the church to serve and preach in his name. We find then that Jesus is alive and active in the world today 
through his church by the Holy Spirit. He died, rose again from the dead, ascended, and rules over his kingdom from his heavenly throne. Now, taking that into account, considering what we just looked at, how is the, this book of Acts typically titled? How do we think of it? We typically call it the Acts of the, the Apostles, right? Is that really an appropriate title for this book? We have to remember that the titles uh, were not original to the writing. Luke did not add a title. So was that an appropriate title? Is that? Well, in one sense, yes, because it is retelling for us what the apostles did. However, it is not properly titled in that way. The title should be the acts of Christ by the Holy Spirit through his apostles. It's a bit of a mouthful. But that speaks more to the reality of what Luke is getting at in this book, what he's telling us about Jesus continuing to work, continuing to um, do and teach now that he has resurrected and ascended. Where is Jesus doing this work now? Where exactly did he go? Well, he ascended bodily and locally in his human nature into heaven by the power of his own Godhead. The author of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias of Sinus, says heaven here refers to this. This is, quote, the place of the blessed, which is that immense, bright, clear and glorious space, which is without and above this world and these visible heavens, the abode of God and of the blessed in which God manifests himself immediately and gloriously to all eternity and communicates himself to the blessed angels and men, and where the seed of our blessedness is prepared with Christ. It is in this heaven that God is said to dwell, not that he is contained or circumscribed in any place, not that any one place could confine God, but because it is there that he especially manifests and communicates his glory to the blessed angels and men. It is called in scripture the new world, the new heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem and paradise. This heaven is not everywhere, but above and separate from earth and hell. And so that is where Jesus ascended to bodily, where he now rules and reigns from, we could call the headquarters of heaven, so to speak. Now, uh, as we make our way through this passage, I want us to see something else in verses two through four. Since he ascended and now is equipping his apostles to serve in his name. Well, how do we identify an apostle? That's something that we can draw and learn from this passage here. In verses two through four, we see some key characteristics or the criteria for a true apostle. And we find that in verse two, that an apostle is one who is chosen, who was chosen and personally instructed or taught by Jesus himself. So one of his 12 disciples, but also later Paul, who was one born late, he says, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, because he too was chosen specifically, personally by Jesus and instructed, he says in Galatians, I didn't learn the gospel from men, but I learned it directly from Christ himself. So that's one chosen and personally taught by Jesus. Secondly, an eyewitness to his bodily resurrection. And Luke speaks of that in verse three, where he speaks of how Jesus during those 40 days was presenting to them convincing proofs, evidence of his bodily resurrection. 
And so they were eyewitnesses of his bodily resurrection. Another necessary uh, criterion for being an apostle. And in the third place, commanded or sent by Christ to be his witnesses. And we see that in verse 4. The word apostle itself comes from the Greek apostolos, which means commissioned, commanded, or sent. One who has been officially commissioned by Christ. So, considering those three things, is it possible that there are new apostles today? Is that possible? Some churches claim that it is. Some churches have apostles. But no, it is not, right? Um, Because they were not, no one can be specifically personally chosen and uh, taught by Jesus in person. And we are not able to be eyewitnesses of his bodily resurrection because he is now ascended at the right hand of the Father, right? And so this book here of Acts is about that unique time, which is called the age of the apostles, the era of the apostles, which ended with the last apostle's death, John. So at that time, we find that throughout the book of Acts, God was, in fact, working in a very special, unique way to establish his church upon the foundation that the apostles would lay, which is the scriptures, the New Testament, written by the apostles and their companions. And so they were also tasked as well by Jesus to go and plant churches and then set up a structure that would be perpetual for the rest of the church age, which would be a bit more simple of putting into place elders in each and every church and deacons, which is what Paul says in Titus. Titus 1.5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you set in order what is left and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And so in every church there should be elders and deacons. Now, I know we considered the apostles here. Why didn't the apostles leave Jerusalem after Christ's ascension? We can look at verse 4 and look at the text. Verse 4, what does it say? It says that they were waiting for the promise of the Father to come, right? Jesus said on one occasion, or it says on one occasion, while he was eating with him, that is Jesus, eating with him, we can pause there, in his resurrection body, he ate with the disciples. What a convincing proof that he was not a ghost. He was a real, tangible uh, body, glorified, resurrected. There he was, eating with them, teaching them, giving them convincing proofs of his resurrection. And it says, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now, what was this promise of the father? It was the gift of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit, which is one of the reasons why Jesus left us bodily. So that as the catechism says, he might send to us the Spirit of God, Uh, to us here on earth as a guarantee or a down payment of our future resurrection with him. And so by the Spirit's power, we might seek not earthly things, but the things that are above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Again, Zacharias Ursinus, the author of the Catechism, says, it is by the efficacy and influence of the Spirit that we seek those things which are above because it is there that our treasure is and there are goods and that because Christ has ascended for the purpose of making those good things ours, which were there long before. And so we find that it is by the Spirit's presence and influence powerfully at work within us 
that our desires and our affections are now drawn upwards, so to speak, to where Christ is, to, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, instead of simply living for ourselves in the present moment, eating and drinking and being merry for tomorrow we die. No, the Spirit pulls us upward and heavenly towards our ultimate destiny with Christ. Now, we need to realize that this promise, the outpouring of the Spirit, was a unique moment in redemptive history in the Bible. In the sense, there was only one crucifixion of Christ, only one resurrection of Christ, one ascension of Christ, and one outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so it's already happened. It's not something that we should sit around and wait for for us. But that doesn't mean there's no application here. Uh, because we believe and confess, like in the Heidelberg Catechism 116, that God will only give his grace and Holy Spirit to those who, with sincere desire, continually ask for it, giving him thanks. We can pause there. Is that your perspective with the Holy Spirit? Do you long to receive more and more manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power and presence in your life, to fight against sin, the devil, and to strengthen you in your walk? We should in a sense, be calling upon God to send the Spirit in greater degrees, in greater manifestations of glory, filling us up more and more to walk in His ways. Now, who is this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, according to verse 4 and 5? We find Jesus says He is from the Father because He was promised in the Old Testament. And in Acts 2, we'll find that Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he quotes from one of the Old Testament prophets, Joel, chapter 2, where God had said previously, it shall come in the last days that I will pour out my spirit upon them. And so we find that the spirit was first promised by God the Father in the Old Testament. And so he is of the Father. But the spirit is also from or of the Son, because John baptized with water, as Jesus says here, but Jesus promised elsewhere and in verse 5 that he would be the one to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said that when the Advocate comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father, but is sent from the Son. Now, what doctrine, what doctrine is contained even in these verses here about God himself? The Trinity, right? The Trinity, as we confess and believe that God so manifested himself in his word that these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are the one true and eternal God. Now, according to verse 3, during those 40 days after his resurrection, what was Christ talking about? Look at the text. What was he talking about? He spoke about the kingdom of God. And then the apostles, they, they have a question for Jesus. And in their question, it reveals the expectations that they had about the kingdom of God, how they understood it still. They were still confused, didn't understand. They thought that the kingdom of God would be the restoration of the kingdom of Israel physically and immediately, right then and there on earth. 
And that is they expected the reestablishment of the geopolitical nation of Israel in Jerusalem right before their eyes in that moment, which still today is uh, somewhat of an expectation of many Christians around the world, but a false expectation. How does Jesus respond in verse 7? He says, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for us to know when the kingdom of God will come on earth in the fullness that God has destined and planned. We don't know when it's going to come and arrive in its fullness. But that's not all that Jesus says in response. He also adds something else in verse 8. This is part of his response to the disciples' confusion about the kingdom of God and how it's arriving. He adds this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so from that answer from Jesus, he's telling us that the kingdom of God advances to the ends of the earth. How? Into the earth. How? Through the testimony of the church. That's how his kingdom is advancing and expanding to the ends of the earth. It moves forward through the power of the spirit who changes the hearts of people around the world by the power of the gospel. And Jesus is ruling and reigning over the hearts of all who trust in him as their Lord and Savior. And from that answer, we learn that the kingdom of God in this time is not intended to be a physical government right now, nor is it restricted to the ethnicity of the Jewish people. Rather, it is currently a spiritual, global, multi-ethnic kingdom, ever expanding to the ends of the earth. However, we, we do know and believe that on the last day when Christ does return, his kingdom will come in fullness, physically renewing all of God's creation such that the kingdom of God will be on earth truly as it is in heaven. Now, part of what's going on here is captured by a phrase in Christian theology or Reformed theology that we use sometimes, uh, which refers to the aspects of the kingdom that are already present today, but also acknowledging that there are other aspects of the kingdom that are still yet to come. So the phrase is the already, but not yet. And when we kind of divide that, those two things, already, but not yet, Christians throughout the millennia, throughout generations, have always been tempted to either two wrong extremes when it comes to the kingdom of God. Some tend to emphasize the already over the not yet. What do I mean? Well, this manifests itself when they have high expectations of the kingdom of God right here, right now. So spiritual victory over against sin, disease, or death, or maybe serpents, right? Um, so they don't realize that the realities of the kingdom of God are still yet to come when Christ returns. And this was the era of the apostles as well. They were ready for a total victorious life. Kick out those Romans. Let's set up the kingdom of God here and now. And this happens today as well with some neo-Calvinists who try and transform the culture into the kingdom of God. They're, they're a bit too optimistic about the fullness of the kingdom of God here and now. They're focusing too much on the already and don't realize that there are still aspects that are not yet. Now, others tend to emphasize the not yet over the already aspects. And this manifests itself when Christians become content with a comfortable life, inactive, 
and not really fighting against sin and really don't have a victorious or optimistic perspective about the Christian life at all. And they're simply just waiting for Christ to return. But they don't realize that they have the spirit already in his power with the responsibility to, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, struggle against sin and Satan with a good and clean conscience. That we do, in fact, have aspects of the kingdom of God that are already ours here and now by the Spirit. So maybe meditate on that. Talk about that later at home tonight. Which one do you fall into? Which tendency? Do you emphasize the already or do you emphasize the not yet? In reality, the correct posture or disposition we should have is a balanced one, right? Holding both together. The kingdom of God is already inaugurated, but it is not yet consummated. We hold those two together in balance. Now look at verse 10 to 11. I think it's kind of funny, actually. There's a bit of comedy here. The apostles are there staring up into the sky and these two angelic beings who appear like men come and correct them, challenge them saying, Galilean men, why are you looking at the sky? I take this to mean that God did not want them to stand there idly looking at the sky. It's a case or an example of being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. So how should we be waiting for him to return? Because we're exhorted elsewhere. We should be waiting for his return. Well, by trusting in his promise that he will in fact return and by going and loving our neighbors in his name. So the correct disposition is not looking up to the sky, waiting, but going about fulfilling the missionary directives that Jesus left his church. What are those missionary directives, commands? Well, we find them in verse 7 to 8, where he tells them basically to go to all parts of the world as witnesses of him. In other words, what is the mission? The Great Commission, right? which we find in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But wait, he is with us always to the end of the age? Didn't Jesus truly ascend? How is he with us then to the end of the age? Well, St. Augustine says it in this way. He says, That which Christ says, Lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the world, is fulfilled according to his majesty, providence, and unspeakable grace. But with respect to the human nature, which the word assumed, according to which he was born of the Virgin Mary, apprehended by the Jews, nailed to the cross, taken from the cross, wrapped in linen cloth, buried in the tomb, and which was seen after his resurrection. And with respect to this his humanity, ye shall not always have him with you. And why? Because when he had conversed with his disciples for the space of 40 days, being bodily present with them, and when they had accompanied him to see, not to follow him, he ascended into heaven and is no longer here. And here's the summary. For he is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and is here with us, as to the presence of his majesty, which has not departed from us. 
So with respect to that majesty of Christ, our catechism said, and we read it earlier, that Christ is true man. So in his humanity is at the right hand of God the Father, but he is also true God. And so in his human nature, Christ is now not on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. So he is with us as we go about our mission. How ought we be witnesses of Christ in this world? Two ways. By our works, first, by our works, living by faith in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we have been called, demonstrating the renewing power of the Spirit at work within us individually and as a community. But that's not enough to be witnesses of Christ. We also need to use our words, proclaim the gospel about Jesus, meet new people that haven't heard about the gospel. We talked about this on Friday night, right? And our fellowship, going out into the community to get to know new people, to love them, to befriend them with the end goal of teaching them the gospel and calling them to faith in Christ to join his church. And so we are to take courage in this gospel truth that Jesus is with us in this mission, that he has left us, yes, bodily, but he is there at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us at the right hand of God to ensure by constant appeal that our right standing before God the Father is based on his finished work for us, not on anything that we do. And to that, Ursinus again says this, he now performs his priestly office, not by offering sacrifices frequently, nor by meriting favors for us in the same way, but by applying unto us through the perpetual and infinite worth and dignity of his one sacrifice, grace, righteousness, and the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, if you were with us as we read through Gentle and Lowly, there were two chapters, one on intercession of Christ and his advocacy as well. So Dane Ortland concludes the chapter on the advocate Christ in this way, saying, do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds, that your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous. In all his brightness and sufficiency, our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost, and his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. Loved ones, considering where Christ is, interceding for us as our advocate, may we ever live to honor and serve our majestic King and our sympathetic High Priest who is at the right hand of the Father and will soon return in glory to consummate his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time of study in your word and the truths that we find therein uh, revealed for us, for our edification, to build us up, to strengthen us in our convictions, in our belief and trust in Christ. And we rejoice most of all that Christ has ascended and that he rules and reigns from on high and that he has sent his spirit to empower and equip us to serve you in this world. And he is there as well as our advocate, ever living to intercede for us, to save us to the uttermost. Lord, we thank you for Christ. 
who we trust will come again to bring us with him into the fullness of his kingdom. Lord, give us faith to persevere to the end. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.